0: All right, welcome back. My next guest is Dean Goodine. Dean is a legend in British Columbia's TV and movie industry where he has had a long career as a props master. I recommend his book, They Don't Pay Me to Say No, My Life in Film and Television Props. Dean, thank you for coming on today.
1: Thank you, Mike. That's very gracious. I like to think legend just means I'm old. (laughs) so
0: (laughs) i don't listen man i don't think i'm exaggerating at all you've had an you've had an awesome career in this business and i love the title of the book by the way they don't pay me to say no was that was that kind of your motto in getting things done on a movie or tv set
1: early in my career i realized that if i said no too many times in a gig economy just starting out in my career that they wouldn't call me back so i would do everything in my power to always say yes to a ridiculous request so it was kind of a thing i had in the back of my mind going through and so when it came time to title the book i thought well that's our job we have to say yes pretty much the whole time so it felt right
0: hey dean let me ask you before we get into the details of your book which i which i recommend to the to the listeners here because you've had such an unbelievable career in in this business let me ask you about a, a couple of um Top-of-mind issues, okay? So the the last time you were on the show, we talked about the tragic, uh, fatal shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of the movie Rust, and uh, listeners will know, of course, actor Alec Baldwin was originally charged in that case. The charges were dropped there. But there there are still charges continuing against the armorer, the guy who was in charge of the prop gun on the on that film set. And that is continuing. Let's uh, briefly play a clip here for from Andrea Reeb, who is the prosecutor on this case on the Rust film set. Let's listen.
1: This set was really unsafe. It was not being run well. They were not doing the things that they should have been doing in order to have a safety conscious and and certainly with guns, a gun conscious movie set. There were lots of markers along the way where somebody should have said, this is not safe. Something needs to be done.
0: Okay, Dean, you've worked on a lot of movie sets, of course, where they had, you know, and we call this a prop gun, but this is a real gun, right? Like you guys use real guns on the sets of these
1: films and TV shows, right? That is correct. Yeah. So uh, some of them might be replicas of a similar pattern to the Colt made by another company, but they are real firearms. Uh, a full auto or semi-auto firearm is incapable of firing a live round through it because it's been uh, made to fire blanks only. So it's been converted to fire blanks only. But the revolvers they were using on rust would fire a real blank, a yeah. real bullet.
0: Yeah, and we're and we're hearing that there is still a, a charge going forward here against the armorer in this case, who's been charged with involuntary manslaughter. There was another charge just approved in this case, and evidence tampering in, in the case. So this guy is in a lot of trouble. What does an armorer do on a film set?
1: Well, an armorer is hired by the property master. So when I when I I just finished the movie, that was my first blank full blank fire movie since the Rust tragedy. So, I hired the armorer. The armorer works under my responsibility of the firearms that we choose for the film. And then, what the armorer is responsible for is maintaining and making sure those firearms are always in a safe condition. And on the set, the armorer, in conjunction with myself, set all the safe firing zones, whether a shot can be fired safely. And if it's not able, if we're not able to do it safely, then we'll do a post-production muzzle flash and move on to the next setup. But for the most part, the armor's job is to keep the crew safe, keep that firearm in working condition and ensure that all our safety measures that we've set in place for decades and decades are followed to the nth degree.
0: Yeah, and actor Alec Baldwin was originally charged in this case, and we've discussed that before, and I'm sure he's greatly relieved that the charges were, were subsequently dropped. But let me play a short clip here of Alec Baldwin, because this, this really jumped out at me here. And uh, listen to how he talks about how he handled this particular gun on the set of this movie. Let's listen.
1: It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled.
0: Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger.
1: So you never pulled the trigger?
0: No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. I have dreams about this constantly now. I wake up constantly where, where guns are going off. You know, one of the things that jumped out at me there, Dean, in that quote, he said he would he would never point a gun at someone and pull the trigger, even if he was assured it was a prop gun or there was a blank there. Uh, don't you have, like, when you're on a movie set and you're filming a... You're filming a scene with a firearm, don't you? Aren't you? Don't you have to pull the trigger anyway to sort of set off the blank?
1: Well, in the case of this this uh, particular time, they were just rehearsing for camera position, and when Alec drew the revolver from a cross-draw shoulder holster, he was cocking the revolver as he drew, and they were lining up for a shot of the hammer being cocked. Now, I've worked on enough westerns for your listeners, Unforgiven. Open Range, Mm. The Assassination of Jesse James or some of my films. The, what happens a lot of times when an actor is doing a quick draw out of a holster, even though they don't uh, think they're doing it, they pull with their finger on the trigger. And with a single action revolver, which is what uh, the 1870s and 1880 revolvers were, single action means you can cock it, but it won't fire unless you pull the trigger. So if his finger was on the trigger as he drew, he would have cocked the hammer with no intention of having that hammer drop and fire. And that's probably mm-hmm. what happened. But the reality of that whole sequence was all the safety steps that are taken to take a firearm from the vault of the prop truck and all the way through to that filming floor were not followed to the point right. of a live round was in that, in that mm-hmm. firearm. Bulletin number one in Hollywood is no live ammo on set. And in Canada, exactly the same. My license does not allow me to have live ammo on a film set. So the fact that that happened, every single stop and check along the way, they just had to do one of the five steps along the way to presenting a firearm to a set and nothing would have happened. They would have caught it.
0: We continue to follow that case there. What a, what a tragic case that is. Let me ask you real quickly. We'll, we'll take a break and then talk about your book here on the other side, Dean. let me ask you real quickly about the other story in the headlines right now in the B.C. and film, uh, TV and film business. And that, of course, is the stri- actors and writers strike in Hollywood that's affecting productions here in Canada. Let's listen to actress Fran Drescher here, famous for her role as the nanny on TV. She's now a union leader. Have a listen. The jig is up. You cannot keep being dwindled and marginalized and disrespected and dishonored. The entire business model has been changed by streaming, digital, AI. Okay, it seems like this strike may drag on. It's affecting a lot of people, putting a lot of people out of work. Dean, is it, is it, uh, how much of an
1: impact is this having in BC right now? That's huge. It's actually, uh, it started long before last week's SAG strike. I, I work with the same crew for 10 years now, and we finished a show together in February and most of them have not worked since February. I was lucky. I got on an indie film in Calgary and I just finished it two weeks ago, but I'm a very optimistic person at best And I actually don't see the end of this. I don't see the resolution. Usually I'm very analytical and can process that after this is my fifth decade in the industry. And so I've seen a lot of ups and downs and, and things that have gone off the rails, but I've always sort of been able to sort of look beyond and find an end. But unfortunately, the CEOs who run these media conglomerates now are the same people that broke the industry like mm-hmm. so i don't know if they're capable of fixing it because they broke it and the system is broken uh the industry has grown tremendously in the last 10 years and those of us who have been around a long time mike have thought when is this bubble going to burst because it, i can't see how this is sustaining itself and yeah. if i was a theater movie theater chain owner i'd be pissed because i think at at the end of the day they somehow have Through the pandemic, thought if they just dumped everything on the television, that that would be the end game of all this entertainment and media. And in reality, is they totally shot themselves in the foot. Other than Top Gun and maybe Oppenheimer and a few films that'll get people back into the seats, a lot of the shows they're putting out are just not worthy of a family spending one hundred and fifty dollars to go to a movie when they can watch it at home for eleven ninety nine on the weekend.
0: All right. Got a few more minutes now with Dean Goodine, the legendary props master in TV and movies in in British Columbia. His his book is "They Don't Pay Me to Say No: My Life in Film and Television Props." So, Dean, we got like five minutes here. We're barely going to scratch the surface of this incredible career that you've had. But let's let's see how we can do here. You you have worked with some big stars. You worked on some big big movies. You mentioned Unforgiven for example, one of the greatest Westerns of all time. What was it like working on that film?
1: I think that film set me up for the rest of my career, Mike, because I learned so much on that set about just having a prepared script, what that can do to a film company. If you have a finished script when you start pre-production and you go on to set and you know, there's going to be no changes. There's not 15 producers standing around coming up with really bad ideas. It was such a well-oiled machine and so I carried that movie with me. I still carry that movie with me in everything I do, the way I present myself on set, the way I do things. It was such a quiet, professional, well-run movie that I think all people could learn something from that one that we're yeah, in this industry.
0: It's absolutely one of my favorite films for sure. And I, I just must have been amazing to be on that set. Did your, did your wife win a, what, nominated for an Oscar on that
1: one? Is that right? Yeah, she was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, She's still at this point in time, the only Canadian woman to have been nominated for an Oscar for set decoration Ah, uh, there have been some men that have won and have been nominated, but she is, she was the first Canadian woman to be nominated and still is the first can only Canadian woman to be nominated for an Oscar. We got to go. I'll give you a quick Jean Hackman story, okay, so uh cause you love that movie. So the yes. very first day that Gene Hackman came to Big Whiskey, the town to play Little Bill Daggett, I was standing there with Eddie Iona, my prop master i had we had his on his badge his belt, And Gene looked at Clint and said, I don't really understand how to play this character. And Clint is a man of few words. And he just looked at Gene and said, and at the time, the Rodney King meeting had just happened in LA. And LA had a uh, chief of police named Daryl Gates. And Daryl was really charming in the media, but the LA Police Department at the time was pretty rough. And so he said, I kind of see you like Daryl Gates. And that's all he said. And Gene goes, I get it. And then fast forward to two years later, we're at the Oscars, we're at the Governor's Ball after the award ceremony, and Jan and I are sitting there with, with our boss, Henry Bumstead, the production designer of Vertigo to kill a mockingbird in this thing. And Gene comes over and puts his Oscar on the table and says, I just wanna thank you guys for helping me win this. I thought that is the full circle of an actor for me because wow. I saw him the minute he arrived and asked how to play the character and I watched him walk off with the Oscar.
0: Wow, that's that's amazing. What an amazing film that is. Let's talk about some of the other movies that you've been involved with here, Dean. Tell me about um, the film Inception. Uh, and I know that was a, a critical one for you too, right?
1: Yeah, I was, just, uh, I was just prop guy number five. I was working on a show in Vancouver, and I got called to go help them on the Alberta Snow Unit. And at first I couldn't go. But then my show got shut down for a few weeks, and so I went. And uh, I get there at five in the morning. It's day one of filming. The entire cast are there. Leonardo, Elliot Page, uh, Ken Watanabe. And the scene was they're all at the top of this mountain, Fortress Mountain in their skis. And I was hired to run the ski shop. So I get there and I'm riding up in the snowcat because the prop master wanted all of us on top of the mountain. And uh, a friend of mine, Shelly, who was working in props, looked at me and said, oh, by the way, Leonardo has two pairs of skis. If it's too cold, he'll wear a slightly larger boot. And for some reason, I thought about it and forgot about it. So we get up to the top, throw all the ski stuff behind a berm. We get everybody ready. The helicopter's in the air. And a Nolan set is a fast set. There's nobody sitting down in director's chairs waiting. It's like when the sun was up, we were going to film. So we're getting everybody into their skis, and Leonardo goes to step in his skis. And nobody knows me. I'm It's like my first hour on the movie. And he goes to step in his skis, and his bindings aren't working. And the prop master looked at me, and he knew I was hired to work in the ski shop, and he said, hey, can you adjust those bindings? So I'm kneeling down in the snow. Chris Nolan, there's a helicopter. The entire crew, it felt like we're staring at me. And I remembered Shelly's line in the snow cat. Hey. He's got another pair of skis. So I looked up and said, yeah, he has another pair of skis. I know where they are. So I go running behind the berm to grab the skis and I bring them back and I put them down. All I kept thinking was, please let this work. Please let this work so I can go back to being anonymous. And Leonardo clicked into his skis, click, click. And the prop master looked at me and says, I don't know your name, but you're not leaving the set. So I spent the next nine days on top of I lost my cushy ski shop job down at the bottom of the mountain. And I spent nine days on top of the Best nine days on set since Unforgiven. I mean, a Nolan set is a fast moving top pros in every department. It was just really an inspiration to be around all those people.
0: Yeah, Chris Nolan, boy, what a what a, a tremendous filmmaker he is, and of course all the hype for the Oppenheimer film coming out coming out too. That was must have been a pressure filled situation. So what was what was Leonardo DiCaprio doing all this time? He's just standing there watching you try to get this right.
1: Yeah, he was just standing there quietly looking down at me as I'm <laughs> kneeling in the snow with my Leatherman, going, I haven't adjusted bindings for eighteen years, so I'm just in that moment. And then when he clicked into his skis, it was just like a great relief to all of us that the shot continued props is about that. And there are many stories in the book about that, the, the hair raising moments. I wrote the book as a storybook. Um, I I wasn't going to put the book out. And then my wife said, after the Rust tragedy, you have to put it out because people need to understand what props does so that the mistakes that were made on rust aren't repeated. Mm. Uh, so when I, when I got the I sent it out to some publishers, got some great rejection letters. I, I realize they write really nice letters in Canada when they don't want to publish you.
0: So <laughs> uh, I put it okay. out.
1: So I put it out. Yeah, go ahead. Dina,
0: Dina, I must I must jump in there. We could fill a, an hour here talking. We just scratched the surface of your career. Congratulations on everything you've accomplished there and in, in TV and movies and and uh, much success with the book. Thank you for coming on today.
1: Thank you, Mike. Really great. of you to have me on.